This letter in many ways represents something of a hinge point in redemptive history. John's not going to be around for much longer. His life will soon end. And he's passing on the baton to a second generation of Christians. And more than ever, it's important that they understand clearly the true and saving gospel in order that they can run forward with their responsibility. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of Pursuing a Larger View of Christ, a three-part series from 1 John chapter 1 with Pastor Paul Twiss. In yesterday's part one, Pastor Paul quoted the Heidelberg Catechism written by our 16th century church fathers. This was their response in response to the question, what is a Christian's only comfort in life and in death? This is their response, quote, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil, End quote. These comforting words were likely anticipated by the Apostle John in his letter to the first century church, specifically 1 John chapter 1. Those church brethren had been buffeted by false teachers who were diminishing the person of Christ and causing many to doubt their salvation. The apostles' response was bold and brought clarity. Here's part two of pursuing a larger view of Christ. The first point is simply that we would consider the person of Christ. John says in verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He simply begins by setting forth the person of Christ and the exhortation for us is that we would consider that person. I want you to notice just how broad, how large a portrait John is able to paint for us in one verse of scripture. He starts by showing us the eternality of Christ. He says that which was from the beginning I believe here a reference to the eternality of Christ, the fact that he was in the beginning with the Father. In fact, John will go on in this paragraph to talk about that Jesus was with the Father in the beginning. Notice also the echo back to the start of John's gospel, that which was from the beginning. We can't help but think that in John chapter 1, he said, in the beginning was the Word. They're certainly talking about his eternal nature. It seems like here John is setting forth that eternal nature and then by implication setting forth his deity. The one who was in the beginning with the Father was himself God. He was God of very God with the Father in the beginning. And then notice just a few words later, one comma later, John moves to his incarnation. He says, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. John moves very quickly from his eternal nature and by implication his deity to now his incarnation and by implication his humanity. 
This one who was from the beginning entered into our world as a man. John sets forth Christ so skillfully, painting arguably the largest picture he could for us in just one verse. And in fact, when you really ponder these truths, Jesus was both God and man at the same time, you start to understand that the gospel by which we are saved depends on these truths being intact. If you think about it, we needed a perfect sacrifice. Anything less than perfect and the sacrifice would not be sufficient. It had to be a perfect sacrifice and therefore it could not be a a man, a sinful man. If he's tainted by sin, he, he doesn't accomplish an eternal sacrifice for us. And so that pushes us towards the fact that the sacrifice had to be God himself. And yet at the same time, we needed an exact substitute. We needed a perfect sacrifice, but at the same time, it had to be an exact substitute. A goat or a bull or a pigeon could not provide the atonement we need for our sins. It could only be a man that atones for the sins of men. And that pushes us towards the humanity of Christ. And so as you dwell upon these truths rightly, Jesus, the God-man, truly God and truly man, you understand that the gospel depends upon these being intact. Why is John so eager to impress these truths upon us in verse 1 of this letter? In fact, he places a real emphasis on the historical nature of Jesus' incarnation He employs all the senses he can. We heard him and we saw him and we touched him with our hands to emphasize that this really did happen. You have to remember again the background to the letter that in some way the person of Jesus Christ was being distorted and that led to a distortion of the gospel. But remember also that this letter in many ways represents something of a hinge point in redemptive history. John's not going to be around for much longer. His life will soon end. And he's passing on the baton to a second generation of Christians. And more than ever, it's important that they understand clearly the true and saving gospel in order that they can run forward with their responsibility. And it's at this hinge point in redemptive history that confusion has come in. Social scientists will often talk about what they call flashbulb events. They talk about flashbulb events and flashbulb memories. And what they mean by that is those kind of events that happen and and at the time they happen, you never forget where you were. 9-11 is a flashbulb event. Nobody ever forgets where they were when it happened. Back in the UK, we talk about Princess Diana's death and nobody ever forgets where they were when they heard the news. Or when JFK was shot. What's interesting, social scientists tell us, is that in the hours and the days that follow the event, though we don't forget where we were when the news broke, strangely, our memories are clouded in the time thereafter. We're often confused about what we did next or what happened in the following few days. My guess is that the social scientists in Jerusalem would have chalked up Jesus' resurrection as a flashbulb event. Nobody will ever forget where they were when they heard about the empty tomb. Now, make no mistake, John 
is very clear as to what happened. John is clear of the account of the empty tomb, what happened after and what happened before. And carried along by the Holy Spirit, we have an inerrant account of the ministry of Christ. But it's at this hinge point in redemptive history as this second generation are taking on the gospel for themselves that confusion has crept in and John is so eager that they know the account that we gave to you is the true account. John wants them to know, I was there with Jesus. I was there with him at this wedding. And I saw with my eyes when he said, go and fill up those jars with water. And the next thing we know, they were drinking the best wine they'd ever had. John is eager that they would know, I was there when we walked down to the pool that day. And I saw that man who had not walked for years and years. And I saw it when Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. And I saw him walk. I was there when he walked on water and I was there when he taught and he looked in my eyes when, when he said, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world and I am the good shepherd and I am the resurrection and the life and I am the way, the truth and the life. And before Abraham was, I am. And every time we, the disciples, understood that he was connecting back to the Old Testament and saying, I, the man, Jesus Christ, am also God. I am the God-man and therefore your saviour. And even as I say that and consider this point of exhortation to embrace the reality of Jesus' deity and his humanity, both equally true at the same time, it can seem redundant to a congregation who by the grace of God are well-versed in these truths. We sing these truths week by week. We pray these truths. We hear the teaching of these truths. What real threat is there to letting go of this essential doctrine to the gospel? Just by way of example, this week I was watching an address to the synod of the Church of England. This is the church And the man addressing the synod was talking about how, although in the statement of faith, the Church of England affirms a biblical teaching of marriage and of gender, his concern was that pastorally in local churches, it is being undermined in teaching and practice. The key claim for the transgender movement is that worth and fulfillment as a human being is contingent upon being romantically or sexually fulfilled. That worth and fulfillment as a human being in life is contingent upon romantic fulfillment, whatever your desire might be. He rightly pointed out Jesus was never married. Jesus was never in a romantic relationship. And he lived the fullest human life of anybody that has ever lived. And so if, in practice, if not in in statement of faith, if in any way the Church of England in various corners begins to affirm the message of that transgender movement, 
then you are invariably teaching that Jesus lived a subhuman existence. And that kind of thinking can just so subtly and steadily leak into the thinking of the church. If the message is proclaimed consistently enough, if the message is proclaimed loud enough, and if it has enough supporters outside of the church, then the church, whether corporately or individually, it can very easily, over time, start to embrace whatever distortion of the truth it is. And in some way, it will affect your understanding of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And so more than ever, we need to reaffirm and to delight in the biblical picture of Christ. Fully God and fully man. We delight in this and we ponder this as a means of enlarging our view of him. Trusting that as we continue to set our gaze upon Christ week after week after week, so then our joy will be made complete. Now, this consideration of Christ that John exhorts us to, it comes within a context. It comes within a context. And this leads us on to our second point, our second means by which we might pursue a larger view of Christ is simply that we would attend to the proclamation of Christ. We consider the person of Christ, we must attend to the proclamation of Christ. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, we have seen it, we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. The grammar of this first paragraph is actually quite complicated. It's like lots of strands of spaghetti. John seems to be going round and round, and we can't quite find the the train of thought when we first read it. When you really come to terms with what he's saying, what you'll find is that that verb to proclaim, we testify to it and we proclaim to you, verse 2, is the main verb in this paragraph. If John places an emphasis anywhere in verses 1 through 4. It is on the proclamation of the message, which is interesting. And of course, as good readers of God's Word, we immediately ask, why, why does John seek to make this the main emphasis in his opening to the letter? Again, we think about the the nature of what's going on with these believers False teaching had been proclaimed in some form, a distortion of Christ and then the gospel, which brought about uncertainty in their lives as to their standing with the Lord. And John wants to emphasize, remember the message that we proclaimed to you. Remember the gospel that that we proclaimed. And of course, at the same time, it should not surprise us that John, the apostle John, would put his emphasis on the proclamation of the word. What do I mean by that? Think again with me back to John's gospel. John is the only gospel author of the four that delights to call Jesus the word. And in fact, when we think about that first verse in John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, we understand that even there, there's an intended echo all the way back 
to the very first page of your Bible. In the beginning. It's no accident. Exactly the same wording. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John says, in the beginning was the word. Now, what's he doing there? He's drawing attention to the fact that the way in which God created was through him speaking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he create them? He opened up his mouth. Let there be light. And there was light. God speaks and creation is born. And there is nobody else that can do this. The agenda that's established on the first page of Scripture is that it is God's Word that does the work. And try as we might, we cannot accomplish in the way that God does. I try it every Sunday morning. Let there be six children dressed with a shoe on each foot in the car in time for church. It never works. In fact, Laura just looks at me and says, what are you doing? Get the kids dressed. The mechanism by which God is pleased to work is through his word. And so after Genesis 1, it's not an accident that as we move forward through redemptive history, he raises up Moses and he raises up prophets and they are the mouthpiece of God, which is why over and over again, we read, thus saith the Lord, not a throwaway comment. That is the way in which God is accomplishing redemptive history. He's moving his plan forward by speaking. He's speaking through these men. And we must be attuned to the fact that when the prophet speaks on behalf of God, the work is accomplished. Isaiah stands up to speak. These are not throwaway words, but through him, God is accomplishing his plan of salvation. And then at the end of the Old Testament, we see 400 years of silence represented by one blank page in your Bible. 400 years where God did not speak. Now he's raising up kingdoms. He's setting kings on their throne. He's tearing down empires and taking away emperors. He's moving around nations, make no mistake. He's setting up the conditions that are perfect for the birth of the gospel. And at the right time, God speaks again. How does he speak? Well, he's spoken in many times, in many ways, through the prophets, but now through his son, which is why John says, the word became flesh. Because with this one, Jesus Christ, redemptive history is going to take a quantum leap forward. And that's an understatement. Through the work and the ministry of this one, God is very pleased to act. And have you noticed have you noticed when you read John's gospel just how much John places an emphasis on the miracles of Jesus that are word-based? The other three gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include many miracles where Jesus is, is touching with his hands. He touches the man's eyes. Or, or, or somebody touches him, they touch the hem of his garment. When you get to John's gospel, he selects his miracles with an agenda. And the miracles that he includes so often are the miracles that simply involve Jesus speaking. Go 
fill the jars with water. He didn't touch them. And now it's wine. Go, your son will live. And the official went and worked out the time at which the words were spoken and his son was made well. Take up your mat and walk. He didn't touch him and the man stands and walks. Lazarus, come out. John understands and places an emphasis in all of his writings that we have on the fact that it is the word of God that does the work. It is the word of God that does the work. And so he is eager at this crisis point in redemptive history when confusion reigns concerning the gospel to say, we proclaimed to you. Understanding that now the word Jesus is ascended, no longer physically with us, that responsibility of proclaiming the word has moved forward onto the apostles. And John is so desperately eager to say, we proclaimed the true gospel to you. And the, the implication that confronts us is so simple. The apostolic office has ended, but the responsibility to proclaim the word continues. And we all, in a pursuit of a larger view of Christ, understanding just how crucial it is to seek that larger view, to continue to take in Christ, we understand that the utmost priority for us is to get ourselves under the consistent and faithful preaching of the word of God. Week after week after week, we sit under his word, the exposition of his word, because that is how God is pleased to move redemptive history forward. Every time a sermon is preached, God is pleased to work through that because it is the word of God that does the work. And in some way that we can't quite discern or quantify, as we continually sit ourselves under the word of God, we trust that he is enlarging in us a view of Christ and teaching us both in the, in the head and in the heart what it means to be in union with him. We grow week by week, month by month, year after year in our understanding of what it means to be in union with Christ. And that is a relationship, the depth of which you can never plumb. You can never get to the bottom of it. But we joyfully sit under the proclamation of the word because God has made clear that is how he's working. And as we grow in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, that is when our joy abounds. That is when our joy abounds. How can I give you a certainty in whom you have believed, John asks. How can I bring about a fullness of joy in your life, he ponders. And the answer is you would consider the person of Christ and you would do it within the context of the preaching of his word. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul closed today with this vital truth. We grow week by week, year after year, by what it means to be in union with Christ. And that is a relationship, the depths of which you can never plumb. 
What happens to believers when the theologians and pastors downplay the importance of living under the atoning work of Christ? Christians lose their meaning in life and their comfort in death. Our loving Father sent His Son to die and assure us of our salvation. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. And if you're in the area and don't have a home church, you're always invited to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you'll join us tomorrow, part three, the conclusion of our series, Pursuing a Larger View of Christ. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.